very pleasant morning to you, wherever you may be and however you might be tuned in. Mornings with Joe Catanacci is on the air until 10 o'clock. Guest hosting for Joe today, I'm Yael Ososki. You can usually hear me Saturdays on Consumer Choice Radio. And whenever Joe will let me, you'll hear me on his program here Fridays at 9.30. It is Friday, March 13th. BigTalkerFM.com is the website. You can listen and stream to the broadcast there. Listen to much more of the program live in your vehicle, at home, at work, wherever you might be. If you'd like to contact the show, email address joe at bigtalkerfm.com. As I mentioned, I'm Yael Lasonsky, guest hosting today for Joe. He will be back on the air here in a little bit, but for this hour, you're stuck with me. And uh, it's a funny day to be on the air, right? Uh, as you might know, it is Friday the 13th. I don't know if any of you should be scared, but Friday the 13th, a lot of things in the news, a lot of things happening. Could it be a scarier time in the world that we're living in? So much out there in the news to frighten us, to scare us. Whatever are we to do? Who knows? Friday the 13th. So it's, it's great to be here on the mic, uh, sub-hosting for Joe here. He's uh, out doing what he does as the hardworking man, the hardest working man in radio. Uh, but we're very happy to be able to talk to you today here on the port in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is uh, the best local information and talk program, the most entertaining as well, out of southeastern North Carolina. A couple things that I wanted to mention here since we're on the show, you can always listen to my program, Consumer Choice Radio, that's Saturdays at 10 a.m. right here on this station. You'll hear much more on that tomorrow if you're tuned in. But here's a couple of stories you want to get through. Uh, I'm not doing Joe's routine as is normal, but there's a couple things that I think he would do if he were here broadcasting to you here. Be sure you go to BigTalkerFM.com, check out all the other updates that Joe is sending, and continue to listen to that live stream. Let's uh, let's pop on over to a couple of headlines here since we're listening, since many of you uh, might be driving or you might be tuned in at home and can't really plug over to the computer like we can. Um, did you hear? The coronavirus is out there. Has it gotten you yet? Have you been culled? Have you been quarantined? Have you been quarantined? Call a lawyer today. This is the biggest thing in the news. There's a lot of uh, panicked selling on Wall Street earlier in the week, but I think people have come to their senses a little bit. Um, if we even look at North Carolina here in our state, we've only had about seven cases so far. Same in South Carolina. These are active cases of people who have had coronavirus, and uh, we don't have any deaths yet, frankly, uh, thankfully, for the moment. We'll see how that uh, pans out. But you, you kind of saw there's, there's a lot of news earlier in the week. In the middle of the week, we had uh, the primaries out in Michigan for the Democratic presidential nomination. So, so much calamity coming out of there. Uh, but I wanted to play, you know, a small clip because we need to reassure the listeners at home. We have to reassure so many of you who might be listening, who might be afraid, might be scared. This is not the time to panic. This is the time that we can actually have faith and confidence, hopefully, in our public officials and our public health systems. Uh, you've heard me on this program and many others discuss and criticize many public health authorities when they fail in certain areas. But so far, we're not doing too bad. You have to imagine that in Italy, uh, where I have many friends right now, the entire country is locked down. Internal travel, 
not even allowed. So that means you could not even, in that circumstance, travel between North and South Carolina, uh, which would be very bad for, I think it's about a million commuters who do that every single day for work, for jobs, for family, or whatever it might be. Uh, Since we need to be kind of helped out on this, let's listen to Dr. Drew. Dr. Drew, you might know, one of the most popular doctors on radio. He's out in California. He gives us a little bit of a breakdown. Should we be scared? Should we be worried? I think he's got a good message for us. So you've seen pandemics over the decades. How does this one compare with everything? A bad flu season is 80,000 dead. We've got about 18,000 dead from influenza this year. We have 100 from corona. Mm -hmm. Which should you be worried about, influenza or corona? 100 versus 18,000. It's not a trick question. And look, everything that's going on with the New York cleaning the subways and everyone using Clorox wipes and get your flu shot, which should be the other message, that's good. That's a good thing. So I have no problem with the behaviors. What I have a problem with is the panic and the fact that businesses are getting destroyed and people's lives are being upended, not by the virus, but by the panic. The panic must stop. And the press... They really I, I somehow need to be held accountable because they are hurting people. So where do you think the panic started? Like, what, besides the press, like, what was the impetus in terms of mass hysteria? In your I, I saw it. There's a footage of me on a show called The Daily Blast Live mm-hmm. a month ago going, shouldn't we be scared about this? And me going, no, this, there's going to be this potential for panic here. Right. Shut up, everybody. Stop talking about it. I could see the panic brewing. And I could just see it the way the innuendo and the, and the every, every opportunity for drama by the press was was twisted mm-hmm. in that direction well i don't know about you guys but i believe dr drew i think he's definitely got a point uh, not the time to panic um and he did mention one of the biggest culprits here and uh, you know i'm a journalist myself former journalist been writing in north carolina for many years i was a reporter at the gaston gazette over in gastonia many counties away in the piedmont region and yeah a lot of blame to be laid at the feet of media uh, we want to get uh, good takes on this. That's why throughout the rest of the hour, we're going to have some some great guests on. This is North Carolina Hour here on the Big Talker FM 106.7. We've got a couple of guests. We've got John Francis Trump from the Carolina Journal, a great reporter. He's been doing a lot on everything when it comes to the alcohol liberalization and following what is happening at the State House in Raleigh. Many of you are tired of going to the ABC stores and even more tired of the corruption that comes with the current system and the total outrageous costs. Um, So we'll hear from John Francis Trump, Carolina Journal. After him, we have Katie Peralta. Uh, Katie is a former business reporter from the Charlotte Observer, and she's now over at the Charlotte Agenda, a nice local news outlet. Uh, They've actually been producing great content, great analysis. I think it was very, very important to have her on to kind of talk about local news media, news media in general, what are the trends. There was a a bankruptcy, as we've talked about previously on this program, and I know Joe has mentioned it, of the McClatchy newspapers. All these have been bought up by a hedge fund, so that's kind of where your your major newspapers are now going to be functioning out of. And there's a lot of problems with that. Could be some good things, could be some bad things. But now is a great time for new media. It's a great time for radio. That's why you're listening, right? It's a great time for radio. It's a great time for online media outlets. This is how people consume their news. So we'll be speaking with Katie Peralta from Charlotte Agenda. And that last segment, it'll be a doozy. You guys are going to love this. We'll be speaking with Professor Mike Munger. Uh, He's been on the station before um, in his capacity as professor of political science at Duke University over there in Durham near Raleigh. And he's been someone who follows the economic news and can give us a good breakdown, but... 
He's got uh, another affiliation that we wanted to talk about. He's actually running for North Carolina State House in District 34. That's just north of Raleigh. He's running under the Libertarian Party banner. Um, Doesn't give much options here in North Carolina. This is usually a heavily Republican state, Democrats sometimes statewide and in various counties and cities. But it'd be very interesting to hear from Professor Munger. What is his plan if he's to be elected to the state house? He's got some great ideas, and he actually has the name Consumer Choice on his website. I mean, come on, guys. That's a winner. I saw that right away. So we'll be talking about housing policy, education, and alcohol reform. All totally and important topics. That'd be great to talk to Mike Munger. That'll be the North Carolina hour. And then we're going to have in the second hour, we're going to have Joe, who's going to take up uh, some of the mantle halfway through. But I'll be on in the beginning, and we're going to do two interviews, one with Vincent Geloso. He's a professor of economics at King's University College, who's going to talk to us about income inequality and the facts around that. And then we're going to talk about cracks in the ivory tower. What is the deal with academia today? We'll be speaking with Phil Magnus of the American Institute for Economic Research. He is a great follow on Twitter for those of you who are tweeters out there. Um, Speaking of that, you can follow me at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S. You were too shy to ask how to pronounce it, but I just told you. And then in the the last interview segment, we'll be speaking with my colleague David Clement of the Consumer Choice Center. Give us some of the the latest and greatest in consumer news and topics. I think some great stuff for this program. It is uh, you normally hear his voice on the program with me on Consumer Choice Radio at ten here on the Big Talker, and we're we'll have a very good conversation there. So I think we've got uh, some pretty good segments there. Uh, Joe will be back on the microphone here in about an hour and a half. You'll be able to hear him. He's got an interview lined up, and apart from that. It'll be me, Yael Ososki, on the radio. You'll be listening to me from, uh, what are we now, 7? I think we're about 7.20 right now. From about 7 to 10, you're going to be hearing my voice, and uh, hopefully you stay tuned. It's great to have you on. It's the Big Talker, 106.7 FM, bigtalkerfm.com. We've got so much that's planned for you guys. Very, very exciting couple of hours on the program. Stay tuned. The Big Talker out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Hadanachi, Yael Ososki filling in. On the phone now, we have uh, someone who has been a mentor of mine in my life and who is a very accomplished journalist here in the state of North Carolina. We're speaking with Mr. John Francis Trump. Uh, Mr. Trump is the managing editor of the Carolina Journal. For more than 30 years, he's worked as a reporter and editor for newspapers in North Carolina and throughout the country. An Air Force veteran, Trump holds a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism and Communications from Point Park University.
University in Pittsburgh, and a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Nonfiction from Goucher College in Baltimore. His book, which we'll be talking about a lot today, Still and Barrel, Craft Spirits in the Old North State, was released in spring 2017. Uh, John and his team, has won, they've won a lot of great awards from the North Carolina Press Association and many more. So great to have John on the program. John, thank you for joining us, sir. Hey, thanks, and thank you for the kind words. Of course, and uh, since uh, you know you've been on this station a couple of times, I know Joe has interviewed you. Um, you've been someone that I like to follow. I think everyone should follow your written work at CarolinaJournal.com. What kind of stuff have you been writing about lately? Um, you know, you follow the movers and the shakers in Raleigh. Uh, you kind of follow the media scene. What has piqued your interest of late in North Carolina? Well, lately the alcohol talk has slowed down. Um, there's nothing happening. Obviously, they're not in session. Um, and I don't think there's anything on the horizon as far as that goes. Um, I did write uh, a daily journal last week uh, about the the newspaper industry um, that there there has to be. I, I, the point was the journalism must stay, but newspapers probably are on their way out. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's propping up a, a, a dying industry, an industry that's 100 years old. Um, and, you know, journalists are hanging on, hoping and hoping and hoping, but, you know, they get, the industry condenses and condenses and condenses. And I think the point being it's time to get out. It's time to start something new. It's time to go local ownership. Um, you know, the weekly model would, would work really well, and I, I think a lot of people have, have tried that. Um, but to be all, to be everything to everybody, newspapers, um, when you're paying 85% of your cost for print delivery, it's just, it, it doesn't work with the, with the way the Internet has gone, and we don't need to walk down that tired old street again. But um, nonprofit journalism, people like us, um, you know, the other policy organizations in, in North Carolina, nonprofits, um, have done well. We, like you mentioned, we're awards. Like we, we won seven awards this year. Um, NC Health News wins a lot of awards. NC Policy Watch has always won awards. And I think that may be an avenue to go. And it's important to have, keep journalism there. But as far as the newspaper model, we have to let go of that. And I also did a, a thing about I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and uh, there's been a lot of push lately about unions, both private and sec- private and uh, public sector unions teachers unions in particular, and I wrote a little bit about my experience with unions, which uh, dad was a steelworkers union for, for 30 years, and uh, teachers were, you know, allowed to strike because they were part of collective bargaining. And uh, I've hit on that lately. Um, it was was so away from alcohol that I'm trying to, I'm trying to branch out a little bit. Um, when it comes to, you know, what the future of journalism will be, a lot of it has, you know, oriented towards online. A lot of the really the only major news outlets that seem to be doing very well newspaper-wise are the national ones. You know, there, there's obviously the mm-hmm. New York Times, Washington Post. You know, they've been able in the age of Trump and uh, democracy that is dying in the darkness apparently have done very well. Um, you know, are there other types of models that you see? You mentioned the nonprofit um, that might be attached to something like a think tank. But are there other models of journalism, uh, maybe direct video or something that seem to be very successful or could be very successful to you? I, mean, I, I think there's still room for the print product, um, you know, online. It's you can get anything you want online, and trying to find a niche there is important. You know, um, us, for example, you know, we do the conservative free market think tank. 
you know, and Policy Watch is on the other side of us, um, opposite end of the spectrum. But, you know, it's a niche audience, and I, I, I think that's important. And I, I still think there's room for print. I really do. But it's going to have to be type of a weekly um, hyper, hyper local, you know, rec center news, stuff like that. You know, um, you know, watch my kid playing basketball or watch the uh, what's the book of the month at the library. Let's talk about that a little bit. I think that's probably where this is going to go. Um, we don't cover, I think, to our great credit we don't cover national news necessarily we focus on the state and if, if you're looking for something that's happening in the legislature i mean we're the place to go now as far as funding goes um you know you have to have a benefactor and and that that's that's the rub i guess yeah. pretty much with everybody because the advertising dollars just aren't there online yeah and one thing that i know joe you know prides himself on in the station is you know there is a focus on local news state news um Really, Joe focuses a lot on New Hanover County and everything that's happening out in Wilmington. Um, but across the state, you know, there are still um, some reporters who are doing very good, important work at the state level or at the local level. Um, I know what the sale or I guess the bankruptcy of McClatchy and all of this in the background, that's kind of what you were mentioning before. Um, but I think it's, right. it's some kind of, you know, positive future in that you already have some journalists, very enterprising journalists, who do some good work on the local level. Are, are there any... Um, that you kind of follow in, in maybe the, the Raleigh area who you think are kind of sharp or um, maybe different outlets that we might not know about in Wilmington that are actually pretty creative and nice stuff in Raleigh? Um, you know, I, I, I look at a lot of the – there's a new, and I can't name it right now, uh, online outlet in Raleigh that kind of tells you what's happening, what's going on, that, that, that type of thing. Um, and – I like to like indie, even the indie week and, and things like that that I pay pay attention to too, and I uh, delve into the local papers quite a bit. Um, uh, Robesonian and you know Lauren Berg that um, they run our stuff, which is great too because we're we're kind of a news service, but but they run our stuff and it, it's good to watch local how local journalism functions. It, it's local. Well, you hit the nail on the head though. Local, local journalism is so important. Um, you just have to watch these people, and you know this. I mean, you, you have to watch the people who have the money, who have the per, holding the purse strings. And that's that's the danger in all of this is um, if nobody's watching them, well, who knows who's no, who knows what they can do. Exactly. But, yeah, you know, on, on Twitter, I don't know about anybody in particular, but I it pays, and, and that's another good point, too, to get your news. I mean, you can't be – you know, living in a vacuum, of course, or in a tunnel, um, having all world view of things, um, even Facebook or whatever it is, just take it all in as much as you can. And I wanted to give listeners and point them over to your book again. It's Still in Barrel, Craft Spirits in the Old North State. Um, you are kind of taking a, a nice trip around the state, going to many of the distilleries, the craft distilleries that have popped up. Um, but you also do provide, you know, some good information on the alcohol laws in North Carolina, things that need to change, and uh, you do a lot of this in your writing. Uh, you mentioned before it's kind of dead in the legislature, but you know, you got to give us just a little bit of hope. There's got to be something coming down the pike or something that we can attach ourselves to to, to get some change, right? Well, yeah, well, the major thing is, uh, you know, Chuck McGrady of Henderson and Rick Gunn of Alamance County are leaving after the session. So who's going to pick up the guide on? That is the that's the question. Uh, 
I talked with some people from Senator Berger's office the other day, and I've got a couple of names possibly who uh, I know John Harster, too, has been um, heavily involved in this. Uh, t- trying to move this forward, and you know, I, as I, as I said, Senator uh, or Representative McGrady had a bill out nine seventy one that they talked about. It's a private licensure bill, um, you know, to actually privatize the system and get and get it straight. And and there's a lot of things still they can do. They they could do happy hours and Sunday sales and online sales, and it's it's it, I think it's low hanging fruit and that they could take a look at beyond the you know monster that the abc is itself because privatizing that's in our lifetime i don't know if that's going to happen but there are there's like i said some low-hanging fruit they could grab like sunday sales for one yeah okay well i I guess that gives us some help we we do need to identify you know more people (laughs) in the legislature who are willing to 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 kind of step up you know i was in touch before the uh, primary election with a couple of democrats um, from my part of the state around Concord, Charlotte, and a few actually were, were talking very openly about, you know, trying to liberalize alcohol sales a bit. So, you know, it's catching steam a little bit on the, on the left as well. This is It seems to have been pushed more so from the right, but it'd be great to see sort of a bipartisan consensus on this. And I think I think lawmakers realize that this has to be done. They realize the system is a mess, and it's been a mess for 80 years because i mean it, it was developed 80 years ago and and they did make some moves on you know stopping the proliferation of the boards i mean the boards can't there can't be any more abc boards beyond the 170 that there already are which is nuts as it is um which is a which is a step in the right direction um but we we were in madison the other day where we used to live and and they got a decent bourbon selection and we stopped in we had to run up there for something we stopped in there and my parents were with me because they had wanted to visit and my mother's like is there they have other stuff in here i'm like no they don't have anything else in here but liquor (laughs) it'd be great because you know you can put my book in there you could put you know cokes and mixers but no they have they have liquor so, yeah. um, you know, that's that's another another move that could possibly made to expand. It's it's just so so deep and entrenched. It's um, it's tough and it's frustrating if you think about it too much. Exactly. We're speaking with John Francis Trump. Uh, he's managing editor at Carolina Journal. So we'll point all the listeners over to your book site and to Carolina Journal. Anything else you want to promote while we have you on the program? No, just, uh, you know, read Carolina Journal. You can log on, get a newsletter every day, um, keep up with what's happening in the state. on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. I am your fill-in host, Yael Ososki, and I'm here today speaking with Katie Peralta. She is senior editor at Charlotte Agenda. Thank you so much, Katie, for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Now, you have uh, been a, a reporter in the scene in the Charlotte area for a good while. I've, I've been watching uh, a lot of your tweets, obviously, and some of the great articles that you've been writing. Um, you were formerly, I believe, a business reporter at the Charlotte Observer, so you've been in the mix of Charlotte media for a long time, and now you're at the Charlotte Agenda. I actually first saw this pop up on my 
Facebook and there was a, a lot of ads and actually some pretty cool and fun stuff. What is uh, what is Charlotte Agenda and if what should our listeners know if they want to kind of click on over to that website? Yeah, so we are a digital news startup and we were founded about five years ago in uh, in Charlotte, of course, and we operate and started as basically a you know lifestyle type uh, content. Uh, newsletter. And, you know, that includes everything from restaurant openings and closings to what to do around Charlotte on the weekends. And that continues to be, you know, sort of what we're known for. Um, In the past several months, however, we have been adding several uh, veteran journalists from kind of a number of different areas um, who are covering everything from, you know, policy to, you know, pop culture to, uh, you know, development around town. So it's it's kind of a changing time at the Charlotte Agenda in that we are starting to um, go a little bit deeper on some of the um, really important trends and uh, stories in Charlotte beyond just sort of the, um, you know, lifestyle type what to do around town. Um, have a, a website where you can read all of our stories every day. Um, we don't have pop-ups, uh, which is something that <laughs> differentiates us from um, other news sites. It can be a little bit frustrating to read, I know. Um, we don't have as much video content right now. Um, I think that's another thing that differentiates us right now. Um, that could change someday if we start doing original video. Um, we have a pretty prolific social media presence as well, and I think that people consume our content um, at the moment. Uh, but at the same time, You know, we do use our large Instagram following, for instance, to break news and then to direct people to, you know, either our website or our newsletter to learn more about whatever the subject matter might be. And one thing that we covered um, earlier in the program is we spoke with some writers in Raleigh who have kind of been watching the newspaper industry. And uh, you've transitioned out of the newspaper industry. Uh, I myself was at the Gaston Gazette some years ago, so I was somewhat a part yeah. of it and, and kind of got to see, you know, what it was like behind the scenes. It's obviously a, a fun, enterprising place for a reporter, um, but, you know, there are many, many issues that come with that. And we saw the um, bankruptcy filings that came, and, and you guys covered that. What was sort of your take on the recent kind of bankruptcy and, and really how newspapers are going to be in the future and maybe the future of media, specifically in North Carolina. wrote that story that you're referencing with um, my colleague, Michael Graff, and we both come from newspaper backgrounds. He um, he worked at a small paper uh, up in, I think, the northern part of the state several years ago. Um, and then he worked at the magazine after that. So we are both extremely um, pro-print, I would say. We are cheering for the newspaper industry and recognize that a really robust newspaper is beneficial to the entire community. And without a news, I really am scared for our community. Um, You know, I think that for those of us who have left the industry, there is a bit of, you know, a a sense of sadness, Um, you know, certainly because we have personal experience there. I think that We can speak to the experience um, from what it's like within the industry and how things have changed in recent years. Um, But, you know, the bankruptcy of McClatchy certainly, you know, kind of turned a new for the company. They are now owned by CAFM, which is a hedge fund, and hedge funds are not notorious for investing a lot in newsrooms. Um, So, you know, I remember at The Observer, I kind of – yeah, things kind of would ebb and flow a little bit. You would have 
uh, kind of periods where things would be tougher, um, we would run into issues like, not run into issues, but um, leadership would make decisions that really kind of were tough across the board. You know, um, last year, for instance, we had, um, you know, an early retirement program. I think that's what they call it. Basically, anyone over the age of 55 was offered a buyout. And that in a single day, wiped out over 300 years of experience in our newsroom. And that's a lot for, that's a lot for a newsroom that only has, you know, a few, a few dozen. Um, I certainly, I, I've done this for a few years, but I am in no way ready to be the big kid in the room. I feel like I still have a lot of learning to do myself. And all of a sudden I realized that I didn't have many mentors left. And that's a really, really challenging part of where things are today. It's fantastic that newspapers do hire young people, but at the same at the same time, those young people do need really strong mentorship and guidance in order to, you know, do good journalism. Um, not that Michael Graff is old; he's not, but he's been doing this for uh, a few more years than I have. So I feel like I really have someone to look up to, and um, we make a great team. I mean, we're a team of I believe eight or nine full time people, almost nine. Um, so we're small, but we're mighty, and we are not trying to replace the newspaper. I think that that would be a mischaracterization, Um, but we're trying to fill a void. You know, um, we recognize that uh, readers these days, especially young people, are not necessarily interested in buying a newspaper subscription. Um, They are on their phones a lot. People are on social media all the time. Um, One of the first things I do personally in in the morning is look at my email. So, we want to meet people where they are. And if that's on their phones, if that's, you know, on their laptops, that they are just looking for something to read in the morning, we want to be there for that. And you mentioned that uh, you guys have, have kind of gone from being more of a lifestyle website and, and really making it sort of a one-stop shop for a lot of political news and things happening with real estate or the brewery boom. I mean, what do you think is the advantage of, of this kind of more local reporting, which, as you said, is very, very important um, but what is the advantage of providing, you know, ex- everything that you're talking about from, you know, good, sexy reporting yeah, that gets so to the point online? I think that if you we, – we try to be sort of like your really informed friend or neighbor. And to – like it depends on who you're talking to. If, if you're talking to someone who really only wants to hear about, you know, tell me what's cool and what I should do this weekend, we can we can tell you that. If you are – new to town and you want to know something about city politics, we can be that informant too. Um, you know, for a lot of people who have followed us throughout our, you know, brief history, our five years in business, um, you know, maybe they really cared about the social scene uh, back in 2015 and 2016. Maybe they're, maybe they're growing up, you know, maybe they're buying a house, maybe they're having kids. And so we recognize as our audience is maturing that so too should our content. Um, I'm not saying that we're necessarily going to have the same readership as the Charlotte Observer, um, you know, right away. And I, one of your recent articles, I think it's from earlier this year, um, that I really liked and, and tweeted out there at the time was, what's with all the eye rolling over Charlotte's brewery boom? And you talk about the critics about the, uh, you know, very large brewery scene now in Charlotte. This is growing more and more. And it seems as if there's not much excitement or it's almost meant with criticism in the community. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, I think when I tweeted out my initial, you know, shock at the quote-unquote brewery critics, I I hadn't really stopped to consider all of the reasons that people might be sort of rolling their eyes over this, you know, seemingly 
impressive small business boom. Um, some people are truly just sick of beer and they're like, you know, how many breweries can we have? Are we are we getting sick of it yet? Other people, you know, particularly low income and minority work in Charlotte. And, you know, you've heard the study from 2014 cited a million times. Charlotte is like number one in the country for, you know, or number 50 in the country for economic mobility. If you're born into poverty here, it's the hardest here than anywhere in any other major city in the U.S. So the brewery boom to a lot of people just represents, oh, more investment in already rich communities, more more growth among white, mostly male business owners. Um, something that I, you know, I found really important to unpack because it's more than just, you know, it's more than just surface level eye rolling. It's really like, you know, we want to make sure that attention is paid to all different small businesses. And we want to make sure that people are patronizing all different types of small businesses, not necessarily just the the sexy new brewery down the street, if that makes sense. Of course, of course. Uh, we're talking with Katie Peralta of the Charlotte Agenda. Uh, Katie, what are some of the next <laughs> stories that you're working on or, or big things that you are trying to put your reporting focus on in the next couple of months? Currently, we are just trying to figure out how to handle all this coronavirus coverage, if we're being completely honest. Um, things seem to have escalated pretty quickly, um, both in Charlotte and around the U.S. We don't have any confirmed cases here, but I think it's sort of just a matter of if, not when, is what I'm understanding. Um, so besides that, um, we really want to augment trends in Charlotte, um, you know, which part of which parts of town are growing rapidly and what sort of um, change we can see, you know, particularly in areas like Eastwood Mall, which is slated for a massive redevelopment that's going to be the home to our MLS team here. Um, you know, otherwise, we have kind of pockets of town that have seen really massive growth for a number of reasons. Um, we will continue to cover um, residential real estate a little bit more, um, not just, you know, not just the effects of gentrification, but also what that means for, you know, kind of the starter home market. That's something I think is really interesting, especially as like, you know, a millennial myself who uh, who has friends all the time telling me how difficult it is to, to find that starter home in Charlotte right now, as I'm sure it is across the country. Um, so that's a really long way of saying we, we have a lot on our <laughs> Yes, no doubt at all. So if you want to read more of the stories by Katie Peralta, head to Charlotte Agenda, and your Twitter is at Katie Peralta. You can find it there, and we'll link it in the show notes. Katie, thanks so much for taking your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Joe Catanacci on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Keeping with the North Carolina Hour, I'm uh, very uh, excited here to have on the program Professor Mike Munger. Mike Munger is Professor of Political Science and Director of the PP&E program at Duke University. But more important, he is on the program today, and we wanted to get him on to discuss his run for the North Carolina State House in District 34. He brings a lot of very interesting ideas, ideas that are near and dear to this program and to everything that's on this station. So there we go. Uh, I guess, Professor Munker, how are you doing today? I am very well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. 
Now, when I went over to your website and started learning about your candidacy a lot more, and I hope a lot of the listeners know that you did also run for governor of North Carolina in 2008, um, put together 121,000 votes uh, for the highest vote total, I believe, of any gubernatorial libertarian in the country, which is huge, huge. Um, when I went over to the website, I saw three major issues, and all of these, I think, sang to my heart. Number one, choice in education. Number two, more consumer choice by ending the state monopoly on the alcohol system and zoning and housing. Um, tell us about education first off. What, what does that sort of mean for choice in education? And if you were to be elected, what would that mean in the state house? One of the difficulties that I've always had with North Carolina's education system is that wealthy people have choices now. So taxes go into a pot. And wealthy people can buy their way out of the state monopoly education system. Now, I'm a fan of state schools. I think that, like in Sweden and Germany, having a state school system that uh, works well is a big advantage to citizens. The problem is the monopoly part of it. And in effect, in North Carolina, it's not the only choice that people have, but it is the only choice that poor people have. So the advantage of a voucher system means that people get to use the money that would be used to educate their child, and those parents get to decide how best at the local level, given the knowledge that they have of their own child and the knowledge they have of the local alternatives, they can decide where to, to send their kid. But the two advantages of this is that it returns responsibility back to the parents who are in the best position to make educational decisions for their children, but it takes the financing part and leaves it with the state. So I think the sweet spot is to have competitive provision, but state assistance in financing for education, because I find the arguments that equality of opportunity in education are pretty important. I, th I think that that's, that's something that most libertarians are going to agree with. The question is how to accomplish it, sending everyone to monopoly state schools, which have the disadvantage that in poor neighborhoods, they're just not nearly the same quality. That guarantees inequality of opportunity. So the state system is the one that gives us inequality of opportunity. Having school vouchers for the poor brings us closer. It may not achieve it, but it brings us closer to the ideal of equality of educational opportunity. And would this be very similar to things that have been practiced in places like Pennsylvania, these opportunity scholarships that allow um, lower income people uh, to benefit from this sort of tax-free um, education scholarship system? Is that something that you would hope to implement in North Carolina or at least push in the state house? I don't know the details of what would be politically possible. There's a couple of models. I guess my favorite one is because the, the, the tax-free ones work well for people that have enough income to make the fact that it's tax-free an advantage. Um, my concern is that for many, for the very poorest people, they don't have enough income to make that all that attractive. Uh, Wisconsin has used something they call backpack vouchers. And what that meant was that the money goes with the child. And so as a result, if they if you send your child to a public school, the public school gets the money. And in a lot of places, public schools are the only alternative. What would happen is that with a backpack voucher, there would now be the possibility that other kinds of schools, maybe their charter schools, maybe their private schools could also open up. So I'm looking for something that's quite flexible. But the 
the the advantage of the tax-free benefit that Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, some other states have used is that there are models for actually approaching it. So I, I can see an argument for that because in that case, we could learn from the experience of other states. We're speaking with Mike Munger. You can go to his website, Munger4, the number 4NC, 34.org. There you'll see um, some of the priorities that he has listed out in his run for North Carolina State House number 34. Point number two on here, very near and dear to my heart, everything with consumer choice and alcohol laws. Now, uh, tell me there, Professor Munger, what are the problem with uh, North Carolina's alcohol laws today, and, and what do you propose as a solution for the future? North Carolina has a truly remarkable system. It's unique. There's no other state that's like it. So what North Carolina did, um, there were some changes in the 1930s and then some changes in the 1980s. Um, What North Carolina did was create a system of, in effect, local licensing and state control. But the state system, the Alcoholic Beverage Control or ABC system, there's 170, and that's remember there's only 100 counties in North Carolina. There's 170 different local boards. There's one county that has nine separate elected officials. And these are not nine elected officials. These are nine separate elected boards to decide what alcoholic beverage control in that location will look like. Now, many of these boards operate exactly one store. So what that means is you have quite a bit of revenue that's coming into the system, which is then given to local political cronies. And you can see why, in a way, for the local parties, it's pretty popular. The average pay for the board in counties in North Carolina is $250,000. That is, the the county board chair of the ABC system makes $250,000. Now, the governor makes $140,000, I think. So all of these local county boards, very highly paid jobs, next to nothing to do. They do employ three or four other people, and then there's the workers who work at the ABC store. So the the offenders that I've heard, um, what's interesting to me about the ABC system is everything that I think is a cost, they see as a benefit. So I say, look, you've got all these people on the payroll making, in many cases, a large amount of money. And they say, yeah, isn't that great? It's a jobs program. And I say, well, it's really inefficient. A lot of people have to drive really far and then pay high prices for alcohol. And they say, yeah, isn't that great? That means that it's very difficult to acquire alcohol. We want low consumption and having high prices and inconvenience like that. That's really what we're looking for. So there's really a fundamental disagreement about this. It's not, we don't disagree about facts. There's a bunch of people who work for this system that wouldn't work in a more efficient system if we had grocery stores or even private package stores selling alcohol. People would have to drive a much shorter distance. In in some cases, the nearest ABC store is 30, 40, 50 miles away in some of these rural counties. There's no reason that you couldn't have a local package store or sell it at the CVS. And also the fact that the prices are high and that North Carolina – collects not just tax revenue, but inefficiency wages. You might call this an inefficiency tax, that our our prices, maybe they're not that much higher than other states that also have high taxes. But if you compare prices in North Carolina to the Midwestern states that sell alcohol in grocery stores, the total cost to consumers, which is the sum of the sticker price and the inconvenience cost, is half 
So North Carolina is charging really high prices. We're paying a whole cadre of local officials who don't actually do anything. And the inconvenience to consumers having to drive all that distance and the, the consequence for the environment and exposure to danger driving at night, none of those things are necessary. There's no other state that has the North Carolina system. We are uniquely bad in this. And if you were to be elected, you, you would be one of a, a handful, handful of state legislators who are hammering on this topic. So that would be uh, very interesting to see. <laughs> I, think, I think it might be possible to break through. There, there's actually um, one of the difficulties I said is that each county has at least, well, 98 of the counties have at least one. And then there's another whole bunch of these local boards. And consumers don't really care much enough to organize. But all the people that work for the system, they're ready to go to war to preserve the existing system. So it's a classic political problem of large but diffuse cost and small but concentrated benefits. Well, one would hope some of these people have taken economics courses, uh, perhaps at your university, to, to learn a better way forward. Uh, <laughs> point number three on the website, that's munger4nc34.org. Uh, the last one is about housing affordability. Now, District 34, just north of Raleigh, a uh, huge area in terms of jobs, a lot of people moving there, a lot of California refugees, people coming from high-tax states. Um, when it comes to housing affordability, you mentioned zoning. Um, that's not necessarily what most people think about when they think about affording houses. They mostly say, hey, we need to have some kind of um, very affordable public housing. You know, why is this solution of zoning, why is that the bigger issue? You know, I have to admit that this is the area in which I am most optimistic because a lot of young progressives have come to recognize that the state here really is the primary problem. Usually the story is something about greedy landlords and they won't drop their price. But the, the two big problems that you will run into, even in Northwest Raleigh, which is where my district is, much less in San Francisco or you know large cities that have terrible problems with housing, the big problem that you have is first, there's a minimum size and minimum set of requirements for what new housing has to have. And it's often 1,200, 1,500 square feet, which means that it, a new place that is, in effect, a two-bedroom apartment, that's going to be way too expensive for poor people. The second thing is a zoning requirement that this each of these units have at least 1.5 or 1.75 parking spaces. So not only do you have to build an oversized apartment compared to what many poor people would like, you also have to have a parking garage. Now, that's really difficult for poor people in an urban area who have to take buses. They don't have a car, but they have to pay as if they were paying for parking spaces. So um, I wrote a book not long ago called Tomorrow 3.0 about the new sharing economy, and I was invited, have been invited, to give talks at a number of planning conferences. Now, these, these are urban planners. These are progressive to the core. Their, their idea is that cities should be planned and organized and regulated, and I get standing ovations when I say the main concern that we have to have is to get rid of these parking considerations. We have to not give free, and I'm making air quotes, which makes for great radio, we, we have to not give free parking to people who think it's their God-given right to park their car for free on a street. Well, that's not true. We have a lot of streets. We have a lot of space. We have a lot of impermeable area that's devoted to parking lots. If we stop requiring people who can't afford it 
to pay for those things, then we can have much more affordable housing. And I, like I said, what reason I'm optimistic is that urban planners and many young progressives recognize that that's really the core of the problem. The reason there's not enough affordable housing is that we can't afford to build new housing. So as you said, the usual solution is something like subsidies or we'll have public housing. And if you look at the history of public housing, it's a catastrophe. What people want is to be able to live in integrated neighborhoods. And this actually goes back to schools. If you want integrated schools, you need integrated neighborhoods. And I don't mean just integrated by race. I mean integrated by income. So if poor people live in neighborhoods where wealthy people live also, then the, the, the financial class segregation of schools will be diminished. So the, for a number of reasons, it's really important that we create a system where it's possible to build what's being demanded. One bedroom, 800, 600 square foot apartments with no parking. If you could build that, you could make a lot of money as if, if you're a builder or developer that's a very profitable building if you have a lot of these small one-bedroom apartments and no requirement for parking but as it stands it is impossible to have a profitable new 1800 square foot apartment with 1.75 parking spaces and then rent that to poor people it can't be done we can do it if we just get rid of the zoning restrictions Mornings with Joe Catanacci here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. We're speaking with Michael Munger. He's a candidate for the North Carolina State House in District 34, running under the Libertarian Party banner. And Professor Munger, you are not a a novice in the political scene, but it is your first time campaigning for a state house seat. Um, how's it going on the campaign trail? Do you got any kind of events plan? A good outreach? You know, how's it looking when you're speaking to to voters who who might have to decide on your next job come November? Well, I'm, I, I am very hopeful, but as you say, it's come November. Um, I was unopposed in the primary, and so I've already won my first election, but it's because I was unopposed. There you go. Uh, since the election's not until November, at this point, what I'm trying to do is uh, talk to groups, but more listen to refine the, the three issues that we've talked about that I say I want to be the centerpiece of my campaign. Uh, the campaign will really kind of pick up in September and October, and I expect I'll do quite a bit of walking around the district and some more personal listening and knocking on doors, that kind of thing. But for, for now, what I'm trying to do is research an actual white paper, a proposal for how the reform of the ABC system might work. Because as you said, many people have this sort of vague feeling, well, we could do better. What I would like to do is come up with proposals for all three of the issues that I've talked about so that unlike my opponents, it's clear what I'm actually proposing to do if I'm elected. And I'm hoping that that will give me some advantage. Now, you don't hear that every day from someone running for office. <laughs> Professor Mike Munger, yes, thank you. So hard, like thank you. It was a pleasure. Welcome back. Hour two of Mornings with Joe Catanacci. I'm your fill-in host, Yael Ososki. We are live on the Big Talker 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. It is my great honor to introduce our next 
next guest on the program. Uh, we have Dr. Vincent Geloso, a fellow French-Canadian, but uh, a lot smarter than I am and a lot more degrees and uh, numbers and symbols after his name. Uh, if we look at uh, the biography here of Dr. Geloso, uh, we can see that he is an assistant economic professor at King's University College in London, Ontario. He holds a PhD in economic history from the London School of Economics, and he's been a post postdoctoral researcher at Texas Tech University, and he was previously a visiting assistant professor of economics at Bates College. So, Vincent, thanks so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So I, I've been wanted to get you on the show because you've got a, a great take on, on many great economic topics. Obviously, coronavirus is big in the news. There's a lot about the economy, about income, about income inequality. Thankfully, um, over on your website, vincentgeloso.com, and we'll link that in the show notes so that everybody can read that, uh, you've got a couple of articles on income inequality and a lot about uh, specifically some of the inequality measurements, uh, not just in the United States, but in Canada and around the world. You know, looking at your, your research and everything that's happening in the news now, uh, you know, should we be feeling hopeful about the future? Or are, there, are there ways that, you know, things are going to improve? Or are we always going to be looking backwards towards the past? So I think it's important to be, to understand one thing that is for, rarely mentioned and frequently ignored in current conversation regarding inequality, is that the world as a whole has never been as equal as it is, uh, as it is today since the 1930s. So if you look at the history of economic development, uh, it starts with a few countries growing incredibly rich, and we're talking mostly Western European countries, followed by some Western offshoots, Canada, the United States, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and to some extent, Japan. And that's the story of world development with these countries pulling ahead to like the 1950s. But since the 1950s, there has been rapid growth for a lot of the countries that were previously growing at a slower pace. So that when you take everyone's income in the world and you see what's happening to inequality, you find that actually since the 1970s, there's been a mild decrease in income inequality. And if you're more ambitious about living standards and you include things like life expectancy, education, uh, other forms of living standards that we care about, not just material, uh, biological uh, and educational, uh, we actually find that uh, overall the world has grown more equal since the 1950s by a wide margin. Uh, now the gap between rich and poor in the world in terms of life expectancy is a fraction of what it was a mere 60 years ago. Uh, there's been rapid convergence in these. So the world as a whole is actually growing more equal, even though within Western societies there's some form of rising income inequality. But globally, inequality is falling. Uh, we're speaking with Vincent Geloso, Assistant Professor of Economics at King's University College and very renowned economic historian. You can follow his Twitter page, twitter.com slash Vincent Geloso. Uh, plenty of hot news of the day, good takes on economics, on the finance markets and everything else that's going on. And if we look over at his website, he's got uh, many, many articles, um, very, very busy. Um, Vincent, you'll be happy to know that last hour we actually got to speak with uh, Mike Munger, and uh, he, he would assure you to keep writing and don't stop. <laughs> he, 
Yes, Mike is uh, Mike is an incredibly productive scholar as well, and I, even though I like to uh, tease him that my entire goal in life is to make him look unproductive, uh, I actually admire him as a as a very serious scholar who uh, is doing only one bad thing: is running for office. <laughs> very true, and he, he told us all about that. And uh, here in the state of North Carolina, so maybe some good things there. Uh, one topic that uh, you are an expert on and that, you know, we kind of hear about and with the rise of Bernie Sanders, uh, there's been a, a talk about socialist systems throughout the world. Um, you know, we're both Canadians, so we're familiar with the Canadian healthcare system. But you've actually done some very good research on the healthcare system in Cuba. And uh, actually, you were recommended to me just for that purpose to talk about Cuba and actually the truth about the healthcare system. What is not being told in Western media? So it's the story about Cuba is that a lot of people are confused about what institutions do. And uh, on many margins, actually extreme forms of coercion are going to improve health care. And it's pretty straightforward. If I, have, if I have the ability to put a firearm to your head and impose upon you the act of not eating salt, not smoke, not drink, uh, your, uh, the coercion will probably make you healthier. On, on these dimensions. Uh, just that alone tells us that there is not necessarily something, it's actually just all else being equal, the way to think about this, is a country that achieves high life expectancy in the absence of such coercion is more impressive because you're allowing people to do stupid things. And if you're, they're still achieving that, it's impressive. So that's the first thing to mention regarding Cuba. But the most important thing to mention is the reason why there is uh, how the system in Cuba operates. And the word coercion is incredibly important because in Cuba, doctors are members of the army. They're mandated to reach certain targets for infant mortality, and they're allowed to use very extreme measures. So you cannot refuse certain treatment if you're a patient. You can be forcibly uh, – so, for example, if you're a risky pregnancy, you can be forcibly quarantined inside your house and inside also what is called a casa de maternidad, uh, where you're basically forced into certain behavior. And it's easily understandable why doctors would do this is um, they're, because they have targets to meet. They have incentives into using these extreme methods. That's the first element. And then sometimes it leads them to pressure women into having abortions that they do not want to have, or sometimes doing that, doing abortions uh, without them knowing. Uh, so they'll induce and provoke uh, uh, provoke early early births uh, that they know will end in uh, into uh, a termination of the pregnancy. And the reason why they do this is because the way that uh, infant mortality rates are calculated, if a baby is dead before it is actually born so it's like it's he dies it's if it's a stillbirth for all intents and purposes it doesn't enter the statistic but if it dies after birth after uh after the pregnancy is uh well after birth i don't need to explain more than that uh it does enter the infant mortality rate but since the targets that are set by their governments are set for infant mortality uh, and they have incredible incentives to meet those targets. They actually use extreme measures that few of us would actually be comfortable with. And the other part that's really important is that doctors are also part of uh, their job is to supervise uh, people, not provide care. They're actually the first line of defense and surveillance for the government. 
So if you look at all this package deal together, the incentives, the uh, mechanisms that are used, you realize that uh, the provision of healthcare in Cuba has more to do with control and surveillance that it has to do with providing care for people who are sick and people who are in need of care. Now, obviously, by accident of using such extreme measures, you are improving life expectancy. You are reducing infant mortality rates. But few of us would would be willing, because in this situation, the big problem is, is that you have to take the good with the bad. What allows the good, i.e. longer life expectancies, lower rate of infant mortalities, are part of a package deal, which comes with repression. Hence why my argument that's been published in scientific journals uh, argues that you can't disentangle them. The good comes with the bad. They're a package deal. We're speaking with Vincent Geloso. You can read his written articles and scientific journal publications at vincentgeloso.com. Uh, one recent article that I wanted to pull up as well that, uh, again, you're, you're in the news, you follow the pulse, The Economics of Pandemics and Quarantines. This is published at the American Institute for Economic Research um, at Lin- in late January. Uh, Vincent, it seems as if we're, we're now in the full quarantine zone. You, you read the news that Italy is on full lockdown, uh, many more quarantines, yeah. events being canceled. I mean, what does this spell for kind of uh, global economics? That when you use extreme measures, that's the part I'm much most comfortable like talking about, is the imposition of extreme measures generates behavioral responses on the part of individuals. So think about it like that. If you're sticking me with a bunch of sick people, and I'm fully aware of my full, – not fully aware, sorry, imperfectly informed about whether or not I'm sick, but I know I'm with a bunch of sick people, I may actually, because you've quarantined me with them – Rather than allowing me a chance to get out, I'll actually expend more resources trying to get out. And by doing so, I actually, if you invite me to invest more resources to leave, you may actually create the following situation where uh, you, the quarantine is counterproductive, whereby those who are imperfectly informed about their contagion status end up investing more effort to travel away and thus spread the disease. So quarantines are not clearly always efficient, especially if they induce strong behavioral responses. This is why it's, there's other measures uh, that are probably more targeted. Closing schools is probably a better option. Uh, self, like, and and they're, all, they're all suited for different individuals, different communities, different groups. And one-size-fits-all measures like quarantines are bound to have this negative impact. Uh, Self-quarantine is, again, the best example, but one, as an economist, my favorite is just give cash to people. Offer cash to, it would probably end up being cheaper, but just say, if you stay self-quarantined in that period and you can prove that you've stayed inside for two weeks, we'll give you X amount of dollars. Wow. Well, I was at CPAC a few weeks ago, so I look forward to the check coming in the mail. Uh, that'd, be, that'd be great to have here. But just from a government perspective, it's better to target on, on such a dimension or at least – or then allow smaller communities to target policies that are individually better for them. So that maybe like a school in Wilmington, which is – I assume doesn't get a ton of international travel relative to, say, New York or Los Angeles, probably their school closures – could be sufficient to limit the spread of disease just enough. 
while maybe in Austin, where there's more people south by southwest, the conference being canceled makes more sense. But notice that there, it's different constraints with different actors with different costs and benefits, and they find the best solution to reduce the spread. A great many decentralized solution is much better than the one-size-fits-all, such as quarantines, which, as I point out, because they're one-size-fits-all and so extreme, they may actually induce responses from people that make it worse than the actual cases. Good to hear a great economic breakdown. We've been speaking with Vincent Geloso, the economic historian and assistant professor of economics at King's University College. Uh, we'll link to all of the, the great articles and papers we discussed here on the website and uh, look forward to more analysis in the future. Thanks so much, Vincent. It's a pleasure. You're listening to The Big Talker, 106.7 FM. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the program. Mornings with Joe Catanacci, Yael Ososki filling in here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Uh, we have our next guest lined up. Here we're talking with Dr. Phil Magnus. Dr. Phil Magnus, he has his PhD in public policy from George Mason University. He is an incredible follow all over social media. Um, he's one of the best who provides a good insight into what's happening into the world of economic historians today. And his most recent book is Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral Mess of Higher Education, which he co-authored with Jason Brennan. Dr. Magnus, Phil, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So there's a couple of things I wanted to get to here. Um, now that we have the mic on the program, uh, we want to hear about what's happening in academia. Uh, many of us are not connected. You know, we're only able to kind of follow this from afar. We've um, some of us have gotten away. Some of us have are drowning in student loans uh, from far away, but still kind of in tune with academia. Uh, but sort of if the listeners are not familiar, what is the kind of theme of your book and, and what should people know about if they want to know about what's happening in academia today? Right. So the question that we ask is, why do we see and hear uh, evidence all around us of uh, what we would refer to as moral failings of higher education? In other words, it's charging a very high price for a product that doesn't seem to be uh, offering that much in return, uh, even to the extent that many classes that students take in the uh, higher education system uh, are what we would consider blow-off classes. They don't convey too much information, and the empirical data that we have on testing shows that as well, that uh, after students uh, complete their first two years in college, uh, they aren't much better off in terms of their educational achievement than they were when they entered the place. So we ask the question, what's going on, what's happening here, and uh, why are the costs of this uh, just skyrocketing out of control? And you had a, a very good tweet that came out earlier this week. You're talking about, uh, obviously, the coronavirus madness, and you made a point that right. if, if we were to go to all virtual uh, I think people would uh, start to think twice about the value of some of the, <laughs> the mainstream uh, university education. Right. So one of the arguments I make is that we do education very inefficiently in the United States. Uh, we send students off to four years of college. About half of that is spent taking what are called gen ed classes. And that could be your uh, introduction to English 101, your math 101, science 101, uh, courses that are not all that uh, relevant in particular to the uh, degree that most students take. 
And while there's a, there are some lofty goals behind this of getting a well-rounded education, what we find in the data is that these are the classes that the students pay the least attention to. They're often uh, very poorly delivered and taught and structured. Uh, they often end up operating more as a, an income stream for specific departments that uh, students are required to take rather than uh, advancing their education. So one of the uh, observations that I've been making is this uh, coronavirus-induced uh, crisis follows and uh, we start thinking campus is closed or shift online uh, teaching, we may actually start to, uh, uh, to, to notice that uh, some of this effect on the delivery of these types of classes uh, has been obscured by the in-class portion. And as it moves online, you realize that you aren't really getting all that much in terms of education from it. And we're speaking with Phil Magnus here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. He's uh, also Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, you can click on over to that website and see all the latest articles um, that Phil has been able to put together. And, and one of the things that I wanted to point listeners to is your recent uh, sort of breaking down or deconstruction of the 1619 Project by the New York Times uh, you've delved into yeah. this a lot. You, you've used a lot of your your online social media space to discuss it. You know, if if I were to uh, click through the first time and I had read the sixteen nineteen articles and had absolutely nothing critical to say about it, uh, what would be sort of your response uh, if if you were to tell me kind of how things really go? Well, the the sixteen nineteen project is an attempt to investigate a very worthy issue in U.S. history. And that is the role of slavery on affecting the trajectory of the American Republic. Uh, the problem is that the way that they went about studying this uh, this topic, this uh, very serious and deeply uh, emotional, deeply uh, weighty topic in American history, is they attempted to inject it into an ideological purpose. So you not only get a history of slavery, but it's a very particular history of slavery that is adapted to advance uh, modern-day political agendas. Uh, mostly in a leftward direction. So the project itself uh, offers a narrative that's very heavily anti-capitalistic, very uh, critical of uh, free enterprise in American history, and basically tries to weaponize the the legacy of slavery to attack American capitalism. So one of the critiques that I offer of this project is uh, is basically dissecting its article and finding – evidence that, uh, that runs counter to this narrative that they're claiming where all of slavery is, uh, is recast as a capitalistic enterprise, uh, when in fact, historically, it was very uh, antithetical to that. And you can read um, Phil's articles on this on AIER.org, uh, where you've got plenty of deconstruction there. And I do notice from your own CV and from your own writings, and you're a very prolific writer in the academic space, uh, we actually just spoke with uh, one of your co-authors, Vincent Geloso, uh, to talk about uh, yes. economic inequality. And, you know, you have covered right. slavery in the U.S. Civil War era, international trade, education policy. I mean, there's so much you've been able to cover here, uh, but it seems as if you have waged the wars on academic Twitter um, and, and to, to kind in, of— uh, In many ways, yes. <laughs> in many, yeah, and to point people over there, uh, that's twitter.com slash phil1lwmagnus. We'll, we'll actually put that in the show notes as well. So what's it like being a historian in the social media age? What's that like? Well, uh, it's a lot like uh, being a historian in the, uh, the age of the current academy where the dominant uh, ideological strain is very, very far to the left. 
And in that sense, I'm often the one guy that's arguing the other point of uh, what's supposedly conventional wisdom and a consensus viewpoint. Uh, but that viewpoint's almost always offered from a, a pretty far political left-wing perspective. So I see my uh, my role not so much as, as trying to counter it with an alternative ideology, but uh, but simply drawing attention to facts and evidence that are overlooked when uh, this ideological screen is, is more or less the, uh, the dominant way of looking at things, both in the um, academic space and academic extensions on the social media. And I would definitely point people over to your website, philmagnus.com. I mean, you, you're able to, uh, free of charge, by the way, uh, put a lot of your articles right. up and a lot of your research. So, so thank you for that. Um, in terms of your upcoming no, research, is there, is there anything that you're specifically focused on or things you'd like to tell our listeners about? Well, uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to be releasing a book through AIER, uh, which is basically a collection of my, uh, my essays on the 1619 Project. And it'll investigate everything from the economic history of slavery. So we tell a very different story where uh, the role of government in basically propping up and subsidizing and supporting the slave system is uh, is brought under the microscope in ways that have been neglected, uh, especially in this uh, uh, this recent revisionist approach to history to try to recast slavery as like this market capitalistic enterprise, which it very much wasn't. It was something subsidized by the federal government. Uh, and then all the way down to the state levels, uh, basically up until the day it was abolished in 1865. So uh, I'll be drawing some attention to that, uh, as well as uh, offering some historical writing that uh, that they give um, a bit of an alternative narrative to uh, how we contextualize slavery in American history. We've been speaking with Dr. Phil Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Check out that latest book when it comes out at AIER.org. Phil, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ivory Tower, indeed. Thanks again to Dr. Phil Magnus for that segment and to Mr. Geloso before. I think it's been a pretty good uh, couple of segments, don't you think? This is The Mornings with Joe Catanacci Show. Yael Ososki guest hosting here on the Big Talker 1067 FM. Uh, it's been great talking with you. We still have more to come. Hope they'll join us again uh, towards the bottom of the hour. Uh, next hour. We're going to hand it over to Joe now. Joe's going to be plugged back into the program. He's going to take the reins over once more. But we'll be right back an hour from now, and uh, hopefully we'll get some good commentary, good interviews. And We've got two more segments to go. So keep on listening. You're listening to The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, here broadcasting from Wilmington. It's Friday the 13th out there, kids. Be careful. It's spooky times. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women sing wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down, when you're strange. Faces come out of the rain when you're strange. No one remembers your name when you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange. People are strange. When you're a stranger, faces look ugly When you're alone, women seem wicked When you're unwanted, streets are uneven When you're down 
back near the bottom of the hour here on Mornings with Joe Catanacci, Yael Ososki guest hosting while Joe, once again, the hardest working man in radio, is off doing as he does. And on the phone with me right now, I have my co-host of Consumer Choice Radio, which will air tomorrow at 10 a.m., as it does every single Saturday. We have David Clement. David, sir, welcome to the phone here on Mornings with Joe Catanacci. Thank you very much for having me on the show. So Drive Time Radio in North Carolina, get to hear the voice of uh, Mr. Clement, um, a voice that I hear quite often, but I think uh, everyone else is going <laughs> to, they're going <laughs> to benefit a lot from hearing from you. Uh, let's hope so. Let's hope so. So we, we've had an action-packed show so far, uh, talked a lot about alcohol liberalization. We talked about things in North Carolina that have been moving and shaking, the media industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's There's been a lot to cut through, and since... Uh, we had John Francis Trump on from the Carolina Journal to talk about, you know, the fate of alcohol liberalization. What are the movers and shakers doing? What are they going to change? And then we had Mike Munger, an actual candidate who proposes essentially the Consumer Choice Center plan. Uh, I wanted to get your take because you've been involved in doing much the same uh, up in the north in, in Canada and specifically in the province of Ontario. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, those of us in North Carolina... We are forced to go to the ABC store. We can still buy beer in the convenience store and at the gas station everywhere else. Uh, But, you know, there's changes in Ontario that have happened out of late. So if you could tell the audience a little bit, David, what what has changed? What has been sort of uh, your role and our role in doing that? And, And what are at least some hopeful messages that we can have down here? Yep, yep. So for for anyone who's ever traveled to Ontario... They almost immediately realized something very strange about how to buy alcohol in the province. Um, so one, it's obviously very expensive, uh, and that's because of taxes. And two, there are only two places, uh, for the most part, where you can actually buy alcohol. So you have the LCBO, the Liquor Control Board store. Uh, so this is owned and operated by the government. Um, they sell beer, wine, and spirits. And then you have what's called the beer store. Um, very original name, which is actually a corporate, so private entity that in legislation has government protection from competition. And so you have this private entity owned by the larger brewers uh, that has the exclusive rights to sell cases of beer and 12 packs in the province of Ontario. And so real for the most part, you only get alcohol at those two um, outlets. Uh, and in terms of our work and what we've done in Ontario, uh, so we were part of the coalition that pushed to allow for alcohol sales in convenience stores. Um, so that's something that you currently can't do. Um, you can get in very select grocery stores, some beer and wine, but not spirits. And so, yeah, we joined this coalition, the now uh, existing government the conservative government under Premier Doug Ford uh, has made a commitment to uh, to liberalize alcohol access and allow for alcohol sale in convenience stores. So um, on paper, things are looking pretty good. Uh, but unfortunately, the province is now in a legal battle with the beer store um, over if uh, basically whether or not they're allowed to break their contract and, and change the law. And so there's a long, an ongoing legal battle now between this kind of corporate Goliath and the government in terms of who should be allowed to sell alcohol. And uh, we very much line up on the side of allowing for 
other retail stores that sell alcohol, whether they're standalone, you should be able to have a specialty wine shop or a scotch store or uh, to be able to buy wine, beer and spirits in convenience stores. So uh, we're still hopeful that it'll go the right way, but it has been a long drawn out process. We're speaking with David Clement here on Mornings with Joe Catanacci, Yael Ososki, guest hosting. David Clement is the North American Affairs Manager at the Consumer Choice Center and a co-host of Consumer Choice Radio, broadcast at 10 a.m. here on this station. David, Ontario is a bit different. Uh, we know the South. You know, if anyone yep. has, has been in the South, you know, we're in the Bible Belt. So the arguments for having these restrictions has often been societal, religious, uh, but Ontario, as far as I know, is not in the Bible Belt. Why are these prohibition-era laws still kind of in place? Is it a cultural thing? Um, is there a religious aspect we don't know about? Why is why has this been the status quo? Yeah, so there's definitely not a religious aspect. Um, we know that public opinion is on the side of convenience stores. We know from public polling that uh, that politician that that consumers sorry want the change so it's really one of those things that makes you scratch your head because you wonder why a system like this has um, has existed for so long and actually when you do some of the research you realize that it's because this one company in particular has been able to effectively lobby the government for protection from competition so that's crony uh, capitalism essentially Exactly. Crony capitalism or corporatism, however you define it, it's exactly that. And what's funny is that you see instances of, if you roll back to the eight, even the 70s or the 80s, there are instances of politicians saying that they want to get rid of um, the beer store's monopoly, and yet for some reason it never happens. And so hopefully this government and this administration can um, – can push forward with this and get it done. Definitely. And uh, you'll, you'll get to hear a lot more about this and sort of the progress of the campaigns over on our website, consumerchoicecenter.org. Uh, again, you're listening to Mornings with Joe Catanacci here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. David, uh, we have our weekly show, uh, Consumer Choice Radio, that will go out on the air tomorrow. I think we've already yep. got uh, plenty of clips in, in the backup here that we'll be able to discuss um, you know, if you were to give a kind of a pitch to the listeners here, we'll go ahead and steal Joe's audience from him. How would you yes. pitch our, our kind of show? What, what could people, if they wanted to tune in and go to our website and stuff, what would they be able to hear uh, for an hour on tomorrow's programming? I think the best way to describe what we do is break down the happenings of the day or the week. Uh, from the lens of consumers. So we talk about overregulation. We talk about policy change. We make jokes. We air funny clips. Uh, it's a very casual and entertaining hour of you and I bantering back uh, and forth about what is wrong in the world. And so uh, if you enjoy a good rant, if you enjoy some breakdowns on uh, on overregulation, the nanny state, big government encroaching into your life, uh, our show is definitely one to listen to and definitely one for you. I've got goosebumps, David. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> um, since since we're, we're broadcasting here out of Wilmington, um, you know, it's, it's a great, beautiful city right here on the port. Um, there's actually one article I'm, I'm going to try to talk about later, but a lot about zoning. Um, and and one, that's one thing that uh, Mike Munger, who was on earlier, he talked a little bit about this. You know, if we were to change some of our zoning laws, we'd actually make 
affordable housing um, that would actually be possible, and it wouldn't be through government fiat or government dictate. Um, if you were to kind of describe some of the zoning issues maybe you've seen in, in different parts of Canada, you know, yep. um, obviously there's a huge crisis in terms of cost of apartments or even finding apartments in some large cities like Vancouver, much like we have in, in Seattle or New York or L.A. Sort of what are the kind of issues and how do you think they could be fixed? Yeah, I think one of the big issues is uh, the height of buildings. Um, so often municipalities will put in these heavy restrictions, like you can't build over X amount of uh, stories. I mean, the, a horror story example of that comes from, I think it's New York City, where this um, residential tower was built, and let's say it's 50 stories. Um, council basically retroactively went back and said, hell, hold on a second, it's only allowed to be 47 and is requiring them to deconstruct three stories of this residential tower um, for no reason other than because they say so or they don't want uh, they don't like the shade maybe that the uh, that the building casts onto a particular um, space and so you see this creeping into uh, policy pretty much everywhere uh, on a more local or, or suburban level you often have single family home zoning, so rules that say that they have to be detached single-family homes. Obviously, that decreases um, the builder's ability to build because you have to build these large homes on lots and things like that. When we know that younger people, millennials, young families want access to things like condos, townhomes, mixed-use facilities. Um, and so in terms of the solution, I think I mean, the biggest one is just respecting the rights of property owners. If you own a piece of property and you want to sell it to a developer, well, I mean, that should be your prerogative, so not, so long as they're not actually harming the neighborhood in any serious way. Um, that would be the first step. And then the second step would be legislation that actually discourages this NIMBY attitude. And so some jurisdictions have said things like um, most of these zoning restrictions are not valid within a certain a mile radius of all transportation. So if you're uh, two miles from a subway, the zoning rules don't apply, um, or a bus stop or something like that. That is part of the solution that allows for uh, some more dy dynamic building options, which ultimately makes communities uh, more integrated. It makes communities more vibrant, and it just eases the ability for people to enter the housing market and do things, do very ordinary things like try and raise a family and send their kids to school and be able to afford groceries. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the situation as it is. And unfortunately, it's spread much throughout North America, whether it's in Canada or in the United States. And that's the stuff that we're trying to deal with. Uh, you, we've been speaking with David Clement. David is the North American Affairs Manager of the Consumer Choice Center and a co-host on Consumer Choice Radio. It'll be broadcast tomorrow on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. David, talk to you then. Good, sir. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Always great catching up with David. You can check out our program tomorrow at 10 a.m. here on this station, the Big Talker 106.7 FM, Consumer Choice Radio at 10 o'clock. This is Mornings with Joe Catanacci. We'll be right back after this break for our last segment. Welcome back to Mornings with Joe Catanacci here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Yael Sosky guest hosting for Joe. 
Uh, it's been great talking to you guys for the last hour or so, trying to catch up on a lot of the news and uh, hopefully giving you some nice sound bites and interviews from experts all around the world. Uh, we had John Francis Trump on from Carolina Journal. We had Katie Peralta from the Charlotte Agenda, Mike Munger from Duke University, who's running for the North Carolina State House there, north of Raleigh. We had Vince Angeloso of King's University College, Phil Magnus, American Institute for Economic Research, and my Consumer Choice Radio co-host, Mr. David Clement. I think it was a great program, guys. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it. I know Joe is a busy man, and he's out there putting out great content every single day. So thank you guys so much for following along with the page. Please do like the Facebook page, The Big Talker 106.7 FM. Listen to the live stream when you can. We've got uh, three hours of radio that Joe is doing every morning, Monday to Friday, 7 to 10 a.m. Uh, since I've got the uh, last couple of minutes, I thought I'd uh, use and abuse the privilege of being on the radio. And let's play a little bit of music here. Let's shake it up for your Friday morning Time to get back to work, time to get back into the energy of the day and see how productive we could be. Uh, here's a, a tune that's coming out live. This is from the band Late Night Special, based in Charlotte, North Carolina. The track is Disco. Hope you enjoy.
with Joe Catanacci live every morning, 7 to 10 a.m. on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. That song you just heard was Disco by Late Night Special, a band out of Charlotte, North Carolina. They've got a new album release, so do check out some of their music and all the great music that we've played uh, all morning long. We'll be linking to those online. Hopefully you'll see that on Facebook, the website, and everything else. Uh, since we're here on the program, we've got just a, a little bit of time here left right before the top of the hour. Uh, let's look at some local news. Figured we might as well pop open the Port City Daily in Wilmington and figure out what people are talking about. Here's an article from earlier in the week. I know this will be of, of grand interest to you. We talked about in the program housing. We talked about upzoning and changing of zoning laws. Uh, seems as if there's a little bit of a kerfuffle about what's happening right here on Castle Street. So here's the article headline, Castle Street rezoning ignites debate on gentrification. Wilmington City Council divided. Uh, this is an article from the 10th, uh, so a couple of days ago on Tuesday. Um, this is about a zoning request that's happening amongst the city council members. There seems to be a lot of debate. I mean, this is happening right here in Wilmington. Here's from the article. A rezoning request ignited a debate among Wilmington City Council members, apparently divided by their perspectives on Castle Street's recent pattern of redevelopment. The request would transform three parcels on a 0.62-acre vacant lot on 10th and Castle Street, that might be near uh, some of you, into a three-story mixed-use building. Retail is planned on the first floor with 16 multifamily units planned for the second and the third floors. So what is really happening here is they're trying to upzone. They're trying to change uh, the zoning around that area so they can have uh, go from the main street mixed use to get urban mixed use. The idea is that you have businesses on the bottom. You've got apartments up top. Um, it's, it's a perfect way to introduce density. It's a perfect way to uh, provide affordable housing, and you're doing that in the market. You're not having to use taxes. You're not having to use public housing. You're not having to use any kind of social engineering. It's allowing entrepreneurs and developers to build, offering people a home, and doing that at fair market rates. Um, the problem that is being cast by members of the city council is that this represents gentrification. Uh, there's a little bit of a race argument here that it, maybe this used to be a, a large haven for black businesses and shoppers. Apparently, this is what the article says here at PortCityDaily.com. And there's definitely been a lot of change in Wilmington. Um, I've, I've been visiting Wilmington for many years. Uh, many of my friends and family visit here, love it a lot. Uh, friends who live here as well. Obviously, things are changing. Things are growing. More people want to move to this area. People love being close to the beach. They love the weather. They love the low-tax environment in North Carolina. That's what people are here for. And to have these kind of zoning requests go up, it's only natural and is actually a very positive thing. I mean, I don't need to tell you more. We heard about that from uh, Mike Munger on the program. We heard that um, with David Clement. When we're talking about rezoning, when we're talking about making it better for people to find whatever property that they would like to build on their land, whatever type of building, um, if you're serving the community, all the better. Uh, this is a, a very good example of, of things that could be positive. You are having some pushback, but you know that's why we have public debate. That's why we have democracy. That's why these things need to be litigated, need to be talked about. There should be a good measure 
um, that people are able to actually get together with their community members and improve this kind of stuff. This stuff is great. This is the way that our cities build. This is the way that our cities become much more industrious. They become hot spots, not just for entrepreneurs who are coming, but investors, tourists. People want to come and build this area up. This is the great stuff that's happening across the state of North Carolina. I'm very happy Wilmington in some ways discussing it, talking about it. Um, there's so much more that's going to happen with that. So do keep keep your ears up, keep your earbud, your earbuds, keep your earbuds in your ears, keep listening to the radio. Um, I think that's about it for us. Uh, thanks so much for listening. This has been Moorings with Joe Catanacci here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. I've been guest hosting. I'm your host, Yael Ososki. Uh, you can listen to my program, Consumer Choice Radio, tomorrow, 10 a.m. on the Big Talker. We also stream live from the website, and you can find all of our programs on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. When it comes to Joe's program, be sure you continue to log on, continue to listen. We're very, very happy to get your listenership. There's a lot of stuff out there, but we're glad you're tuning in to Wilmington's greatest and the best talk radio station. For Joe and for the entire team at The Big Talker, thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.